a dramatic tug of war over financial corruption and on the nuclear threshold of war or peace. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 28th of October 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be discussing a battle of uh, inquiries, dueling inquiries, we might say, about the nature of ASIC and whether it's doing its job, which is a flat no, <laughs> and other breakthroughs on our various campaigns. Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, the nuclear question and whether uh, there will be a breakthrough, but will it be nuclear war or will we have nuclear energy in Australia? And Richard will have a bit to say about that. So that's coming up. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and ring the notification bells and we'll alert you of new shows coming up. We just had one uh, this week, which you can have a look at, which will be the previous one on uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, with former Senator Dio Wang, which is very interesting to look at. Uh, and share this as widely as you can to get the word around. Now, on to the first topic, a dramatic tug of war over financial corruption. So uh, we've had some interest, very interesting reports this week, uh, flowing thick and fast. Um, regular viewers will remember we've talked on the show numerous times about the Adams report, which was a report put together by economist John Adams about the fact that ASIC, ASIC gets a lot of complaints, right? And they only investigate a mere 0.74% mm. of all uh, the, the claims that actually come over their desk, which is pretty pathetic for what's supposed to be the financial cop on the mm. beat. And that's despite having an increase in staff, an increase in resources, more powers, and they're doing less and less with them. Yeah. Now, um, this is something which uh, has been raised. We've raised it for a long time. People like Denise Braley has raised it for decades. But um, looking at 10 years of data, what John Adams was able to do and put together in a very thorough brief got the attention of one Liberal Senator, which is actually rather interesting, Senator Andrew Bragg. Uh, so he decided to run with this and put up a motion which was tabled yesterday on the floor of the Senate, which passed 43 votes to 20 uh, to have an inquiry, a full inquiry into this matter of whether ASIC is indeed doing its job or not. Now, voting in favour of that were the Greens, uh, the Crossbench and the Coalition. Voting against it was the Labor Party. Uh, and in fact, Senator Deb O'Neill uh, claimed it would duplicate the inquiry already underway in the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services, which is the committee which exercises oversight over ASIC. Mm. But... That is an inquiry which she had just launched that morning, mm. having convened a meeting of that committee, which include, included people like Bragg, Andrew Bragg, and other supporters of his inquiry, um, to, in order to head off yeah, yeah. his more thorough inquiry. Yeah, because the, the, uh, that committee, it's a standing committee, so it can convene 
um, inquiries off its own initiative, whereas Senator Bragg's motion um, was to refer it to the, uh, the Senate Economics uh, references. references Committee mm. um, with, I believe, virtually identical terms, terms of, of reference, reference but yeah. yeah, already underway is quite a stretch. I mean, yeah. that's, just, that's pretty pale sophistry right there. So she grabbed the terms of reference and seized upon it and said, no, we're going to be in control of this. Um, now, you know, either one of these sides, who knows what kind of a serious job they'll actually do. You can't trust either side in reality, as we know. Mm. But it's very interesting uh, that there's now this kind of duel over two different inquiries. And if it were to persist that there remains two inquiries, it's probably likely that it gets resolved into one or the other. Mm. But if it were to persist, it would be rather interesting because they'd be in competition with each other. Uh, and the best way to compete would be to actually bring the real evidence to the mm. fore, the real witnesses, and get to the bottom of some of the um, goings on. Um, so I just want to play a clip before we keep talking about this, though. This is the clip of what Senator Deb O'Neill had to say when this came up, and you'll see it goes to a vote because um, she tried to head off the vote. However, Bragg persisted with it and the vote went ahead anyway, and it did pass. Senator O'Neill. I seek leave to make a short statement. Is leave granted? Our leave is granted for one minute, Senator O'Neill. I draw the Senate's attention to the reality of the work of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations of Financial Services. It is the statutory responsibility of that committee to inquire into the effectiveness of ASIC's enforcement measures um, and to make sure that we do our proper judicial, uh, ju uh, judicious work in supervising that, that uh, entity. Mr Senator Bragg and Senator McKim are both members of that committee, and it's within that committee this morning that we adopted the terms of reference that are here on the notice paper before the senators, with the addition of one further, uh, one further item, the effectiveness of ASIC's enforcement measures in protecting vulnerable Australians. If this bill is supported, Senators, it will lead to a duplication of this inquiry in two different places. In fact, this is the construction of a platform for Senator Bragg, who is on both committees, to provide himself with an opportunity for media, not the service of the Australian people. I urge you, Senators, to vote against this. We should be absolutely uh, working on this you, in Senator the PJC. Neil, your time has expired. So the question is that the motion is moved by Senator Bragg business of the Senate number one be agreed to. Those of that opinion say aye. aye. Against? No. Uh, believe the ayes have it. No. Division required. Ring the bells for four minutes. Order. Lock the doors. So the question is, business of the Senate number one, standing in the name of Senator Bragg, be agreed to. The ayes shall move to the right of the chair, the noes to the left. I appoint Senator Askew as teller for the ayes and Senator Urquhart as teller for the noes. Order. There being 43 ayes and 20 noes, the matter is resolved in the affirmative. Okay, so you know it was very interesting um, tug of war going on there. But this is a major inquiry, the first since the 2018 Royal Commission laid out the failures of ASIC in living colour. And when I say it's a major inquiry, um, the term, well, first of all, it's going to uh, have a lengthy term. 18 months or so, it's due to report by June 2024. But second of all, the terms of reference are quite thorough and we'll look at dispute resolution, compensation schemes, deterrence of poor market behaviour, 
um, meeting expectations for regulatory and enforcement action, the range and the use of regulatory tools of ASIC, penalties for offences and resourcing for timely investigations. So, you know, that covers a pretty wide range mm. of issues um, that could really drill down. And then I haven't looked at them, but presumably this has the usual formulation at the end or any uh, yeah, related matter. It does, right? exactly. So it gives us the range to intervene to bring up relevant, and especially case studies, for example, um, as we, you know, had championed for a long time on this show, justice for the victims of Sterling First mm. who were retirees who got sucked into a complex investment scheme, mm. completely unaware, and many of whom had actually done their due diligence and gone to people like ASIC to say, are there any rag f red flags here? And mm. the answer was no. In fact, there were many uh, across the time. But the, um, the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald had coverage of this inquiry uh, being announced yesterday, and they highlighted the fact that nine out of 10 complaints um, are thrown out by ASIC and not pursued. Mm. And this isn't just consumer complaints, this is complaints from whistleblowers as well. Yeah, right. They just don't investigate them. Mm. And which, you know, has implications for mm. whistleblowing per se. Um, the article quoted Senator Andrew Bragg, uh, which I thought was interesting. He said, the Hain Royal Commission into the financial sector produced vast amounts of evidence highlighting ASIC's failures. Too many Australians have been hurt by its, quote, persistent failure to enforce the law. That's a very significant thing. He mm. said it is time for a much closer look at ASIC's law enforcement record and capability. ASIC must get better at its one job of law enforcement or the integrity of our financial system mm. is at risk. Yeah, and this Senator Brett, you know, he knows whereof he speaks. This is a former high-level guy with the Financial Services Council, mm. peak body for investment finance and that type of thing. So before he came into the Senate, uh, he's been there only one term. I think he's still in his first term. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, he, if, if he says that, and you know, he would know. Yeah, and that, that it does have huge implications. The integrity of our entire financial system, think about everything we talk about with the state of the global financial system as it is top down, and, and here mm. we are with these problems right down through all the levels, um, which is the systemic nature of, of this um, mess that we have, this what we call a financial system. Um, but the article also went on to report that Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones will likely ask the Senate to overturn this decision, this vote for uh, the inquiry. I'm sure that'll fly like a lead balloon. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it passed, as we said, 43 to 20. But it's really stunning that he would even say, suggest mm. that. I mean, what are these guys afraid of? It's, yeah. um, you know, they know that there's much bigger questions afoot here because of the nature of the corruption of our financial system, mm. you know, the haven for white-collar crime, as it's been described. Um, so, and, and I just wanted to also mention that uh, it also came to attention, our attention that yesterday Bragg also succeeded in getting a motion passed to make the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, AFCA, um, have to face Senate estimates hearings. In other mm. words, come and sit up on the stand and face questioning from the parliamentary elected representatives. Mm. Uh, because this thing was set up as a replacement for the old Financial Ombudsman Service and we've... Um, our, our colleague Melissa Harrison wrote some articles about it um, in the last year or so that mm. 
um, this thing was set up as a foil, as a as you know a, a, a protective barricade around the financial system that it's supposed supposed to be there to police. It's not accountable to anybody, even to Parliament until now. Uh, it's not. A, uh, there's no. Its its code of conduct is voluntary, and there's no penalties for non-compliance. All of these things. And it, its main function is to sweep everything under the carpet, the same way that ASIC has effectively been doing, um, according to John Adams' mm. report, mm-hmm. which is now, you know, all that's now going to be investigated. So that might constitute one of those related matters we were talking about, mm. too, conceivably. Yeah, and look, this this was a very fast and effective intervention. And, um, you know, a big thank you to everyone who mobilised. Uh, the parliament was certainly, in a very short space of time, flooded with phone calls and emails, and we were very quickly getting messages back saying, from aides to parliamentarians saying, mm. we got the message. Yeah, well, um, I, I believe the line was, there's no one like the Citizens Party for melting down the phone. <laughs> that's what one advisor <laughs> said. Um, so, you know, we put out the call. Uh, Robbie did a show, Robbie Barwick did a show with Martin North. You had the interests of the people. All of the supporters, the viewers of those channels, all of the networks, there's a, quite a grand coalition that's been created here, of course, with the flow through from the Sterling First campaign. So many of the bank victims that are engaged, you know, 100% of the time, they're ready to move as soon as something of this nature happens. Um, and, you know, our previous campaigns, things like the defeat of the cash ban. So there's a really... Um, well-oiled machine and Mm. this kind of intervention shows the power of the people and how it can be deployed and I'll just put people on notice get ready to put your submission into this inquiry presuming it goes ahead in the way that uh, is suggested Um, whatever form the inquiry takes if it is resolved into one rather than two there'll surely be a process by which people can put in their submission and particularly if you are a bank victim if you know of bank victims people that have those personal stories to tell are very powerful. So um, the other thing we wanted to update viewers on is the fight against uh, another corrupt financial policeman, APRA, Mm. the Australian Potential um, Regulation Authority. So talking about persistent failure to enforce the law, which was Andrew Bragg's words about ASIC, that well and truly applies to APRA as well. And we reported last week on um, Dale Webster from the regional and how she had challenged the way APRA records what's, you know, classified as a bank branch, which are supposed to not only give personal service in terms of deposit taking and withdrawals, but also to, a key thing is to provide change. So Mm. it's not just an ATM, Mm. but if they can give change for businesses, you know, to put in their cash registers and so forth. The floats for the tills, there's a lot of small business, particularly so in the regions, you know, they they need somewhere to get, they change to start off the, the day's um, transactions because, again, a lot of people are still paying in cash, um, uh, including because the digital systems often break down out there because, you know, governments don't bother to maintain them or, or you know, build anything. It's all left to the private yeah, sector. Yeah, as we talked about on last week's show, we had some examples of that. Um, and APRA, as we said last week, APRA had put the latest raft of its points of presence data for banking access together and it appeared that they had made the relevant changes but it turns out they'd only changed the the bank branches in question Mm. that had been raised in senate estimates by name in Mm. april so there were you know three or four that were mentioned 
in name, although they were only examples of the types of errors in APRA's data, they just changed those ones that were named. Yeah, the ones that specifically mentioned and left the rest. And left the rest. Dozens more were in the same category. So um, Dale, who's you know a real bulldog on this stuff, she pursued APRA and demanded to know what was going on here. And APRA basically responded saying, you know, we'll do it how we see fit to do it. We'll just go along our merry way regardless of the law. Um, and they stated that in cases where branches were staffed and offered customers the ability to withdraw or deposit cash using ATMs, APRA considered that those facilities continue to meet its definition of a branch, mm. even though they don't provide change. Yeah. And, well, APRA can have all the definitions at once. You know, it can... Uh, the fact is, the letter of... The, this is not a regulation. This is, this is not an, a ministerial instrument. This is in the legislation what constitutes a bank branch that mm. they are supposed to enforce. Exactly. Um, and then APRA went on to say that in line with the recommendations of the Regional Banking Task Force, APRA will commence a review of how the data is measured, including the definition of a branch. Mm. So in other words, they're just going to try to change the law. Yeah, they're, going to, they're going to presume to dictate to our elected mm. representative government uh, the, these technocrats who... You know, like the the just retired head of APRA um, was part of the, for many years, uh, was on secondment um, or employed directly over in Switzerland developing this framework for mm. cashless cashless society and bank bail-ins that we've talked about many times. Yeah. The, the infamous Basel committees. He was the head of one of those. <clears throat> um, and so, and then brought back here to, to help implement it mm. all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they they their whole modus operandi is they presume to dictate to, you know, we call this a democracy. These guys aren't elected; mm -hmm. they're appointed, and they're self-appointed to try and change the law, lobby their their employers to change the laws um, at uh, to to meet the the needs of the global financial system rather than the nation, right? That they yeah. that these people are supposedly there to represent. Exactly. I mean, the fact that you have to have people like Dale Webster come along or John Adams in the previous example, people like Denise Braley who fired on a shoestring for bank victims mm. for decades, people like Evan Jones who we've cited in our alert service who is a um, University of Sydney economist who wrote yesterday to the Senate Economic References Committee, you know, in a, at a moment's notice with a you know, really compelling argument about the failings of ASIC lying in regard to their complaints, um, the duplicity that's gone on. Um, and, and he's someone who has been cited. I mean, I'm putting together the Citizen Party's submission for the review of the Reserve Bank, and I'm looking back at, you know, reports about the um, Campbell inquiry, Martin inquiry, the Wallace inquiry, the way that our regulatory structures were dismantled and Evan Jones's name comes up constantly as a witness in hearings and mm. reviews about all of this and citing people like Denise Braley. So, you know, these are the real leadership that are mm. holding uh, to account what these functions, are, the functions that are supposed to be performed but are not being performed. Now, the other intervention we wanted to report on, which intersects this whole question of the, you know, rising, raising a level of leadership that doesn't exist in Parliament and, and forcing the politicians to listen, is the, uh, a conference just took place of the Local Government Association in New South Wales and there were two motions regarding our push for a postal bank 
and the closure of bank branches that were put forward there. And so this was another wonderful tug of war that went on. Um, first of all, the Junee Shire Council put forward a call for a moratorium on bank branch closures in rural towns. So they would be writing to uh, the federal, state and federal governments demanding there be a moratorium on that. Cease mm. all closures of banks. Um, so that passed um, successfully by the entire local government association. Then the Cobar Shire Council put forward a call for a post office People's Bank fully guaranteed by the Commonwealth as a dedicated postal savings bank operating exclusively through Australia Post. Um, now, that, that was an interest, more interesting um, state of affairs because the councillor from Cobar who proposed that motion was not present and unfortunately the motion was amended uh, by another councillor to change the wording completely and recommending in the end that um, the recommendation to, that they would put to the state and federal governments would be to follow the regional banking task force report, which as Dale Webster has uh, written extensively, was a disaster because it didn't mm. recommend anything useful whatsoever. It basically just said, you know, as you were, uh, continue as, as we've been proceeding. Um, now, we don't know all the ins and outs of why that happened. One hypothesis is that because they've got the last bank in town, they don't want to lose it and they don't want to offend the banks potentially, which is just a ridiculous way of thinking. But one councillor did put forward his two bobs worth during that debate and said, who are we to tell the banks what to do? <laughs> well, you're the government, <laughs> mate. That's how it's supposed to work. Exactly. Um, so unfortunately, that um, doesn't um, contribute to the motion for a postal bank at this point. However, it is very early days and, and this basically came about organically. There hadn't mm. been much of a push to put this forward at the LGA in level in New South Wales. It, you know, it was excellent that it even came up in the first place and we'll continue to push for it. And in fact, early next year will be the National um, Local Government Association gathering and we'll obviously be pushing to get something similar or a proper motion put up at that point. And in the meantime, the critical role for our supporters and viewers is to educate their councillors because one of the things we find at all of these council hearings, we've been playing some of them on the show in numerous weeks, where you'll have a council debate and you'll hear the point of view of many of these councillors is just completely uninformed mm. about what the proposal is because they just don't know anything about it. And, and many of them think, oh, it sounds good, but they have a lot of questions. So we have to get to work educating those people. Mm -hmm. All the resources are available on our website, you know, that people can educate themselves to and print out the material, get a hold of flyers, um, look, look at some of the videos that we put out on the details. In fact, show the videos. We've produced some very short video ads of four or five, six minutes that you can show, have your councillor watch it in front of you. Yep, agitate, educate and organise, yep, as William Spettens would have said, did right. say many years ago. That's what's on the agenda. So get involved, give us a call if you need help with it. Um, now, moving on to our next topic on the nuclear threshold of war or peace. Um, so we want to first give an update on the international war front and the danger of thermonuclear World War Three is very ever present. And then we want to talk a little bit about um, how nuclear technology is better deployed 
at the service of fixing the energy crisis that we're facing. So firstly, on the war front, um, big developments over the course of the week. The Russian Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu, called, on his, uh, called up his counterparts in the US, the UK, France and Turkey with evidence that Ukraine is planning to use a so-called dirty bomb, um, which is a regular bomb. Yeah, a conventional explosive packed with radioactive material to contaminate large areas. Yeah, uh, once it detonates. Yeah. So, you know, would be, you know, quite have quite a major impact. And um, the evidence that Russia has presented uh, was laid out at a closed door meeting of the United Nations Security Council yesterday and was taken very seriously from the reports that we've received. So what the Russians are suggesting is that this would be a false flag provocation uh, that would be blamed on Russia and would provide the pretext for a, what they called a powerful anti-Russian campaign, including possible expulsion of Russia from the UN Security Council. So by getting out ahead of this, hopefully mm. it will prevent it from happening. The other thing is that on the 24th of October, a statement was issued by Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov, commander of Russia's nuclear, biological and chemical protection troops. It said, we have information about contacts between the office of the president of Ukraine and representatives of the United Kingdom regarding the possible reception of technologies to create nuclear weapons. Mm. And as one of our um, long-time collaborators pointed out to us recently, you know, Ukraine, a lot of, a lot of the Soviet Union's, uh, not just heavy industries, but, um, but nuclear science and technology um, division you know, uh, departments were based in the former Ukrainian SSR. So there is that latent capacity there. They, despite all of the collapse over the last 30 years since, quote unquote, independence, they do still retain the know-how to be able to throw something together throw something like that together relatively quickly. That's right. And, and this fellow Kirillov is suggesting that they were getting assistance as well from the United Kingdom. So yeah, well, that figures the British never met a war that they didn't want to fan the flames of. Absolutely. Um, now, on the other side, from the United States side, the other side of our ang dangerous Anglo-American allies, um, the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division, one of America's most elite assault divisions, has 4,700 soldiers currently deployed in NATO member state Romania. It's their first deployment into Europe since the end of World War, since World War II. Mm. Um, now, I want to show a video here because it just, you know, gives you the colour of this situation, which, you know, how close these guys are to the border of Ukraine and the question of American boots on the ground in Ukraine, of course, being raised. Um, so CBS News did um, some interviews. They were there on the ground on the 21st of, oh, well, this report came out on the 21st of October. Um, and, you know, there were commanders that were interviewed by them who said, quote, they're fully prepared to cross the border into Ukraine if the fighting escalates. So we'll roll that clip. Since the start of the war in Ukraine back in February, the U.S. military has added an additional 20,000 troops to the European theater, taking the total there to around 100,000. And many of those troops are in Eastern Europe. Only on CBS Mornings, we are getting a look at the U.S. forces closest to the fighting in Ukraine, supporting NATO allies and sending a very clear message to Russia.
Charlie Daggett is in Romania for us this morning. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Tony. Romania is now home to the 101st Airborne Division. It's the first time it's been headquartered here in Europe in nearly 80 years. This is some of the equipment they brought from home. A 777 howitzer ready to roll at any minute. They're specifically trained to deploy on any battlefield in the world within hours. Go, 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 go. Ready to fight. The reason one of America's most elite oh, air no, assault divisions has been sent right here, right now. We joined Deputy Commander Brigadier General John Lubis and Colonel Edwin Methadis, commander of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team, on board a Black Hawk helicopter for an hour's chopper ride to the very edge of NATO territory, around three miles from the border with Ukraine. From the start of the war, Russia advanced from Crimea along the Black Sea to Kherson, aiming to capture port cities like Mykolaiv and Odessa to landlock Ukraine. We're right about here. We're ready to defend every inch of NATO soil. Why is it necessary to have the 101st here? We bring a unique capability. We're a light infantry force, but again, we bring that mobility uh, through our aircraft and our air assaults. We skirt along the Black Sea coast as we head further north. We're roughly 20 miles away from Snake Island, this contentious island that's been fought over between the Ukrainians and the Russians, currently under Ukrainian control. At a forward operating site, we watched as U.S. soldiers and Romanian troops pounded targets in a joint ground and air assault. The tank rounds and artillery fire are real. So is the enemy, meant to recreate the fight against Russian forces in Ukraine. A message to Russia and NATO allies alike, we're here. The real meaning for me to have the American troops here is like if you were to have allies in Normandy before any enemy was there. In all, roughly 4,700 soldiers of the 101st Screaming Eagles from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, have been deployed to reinforce NATO's eastern flank. You've had an opportunity to, to watch, observe, and possibly study the Russians. What do you think of them so far? So we're, uh, we're closely watching them. So we're building uh, objectives to, to practice against that replicate exactly what's going on in Ukraine. We're the closest American unit to the fighting in Ukraine. And what does that feel like? What does that mean? It, uh, it keeps, us on, uh, keeps us on our toes, right? So it makes my Ready to fight tonight is a message that we've heard repeatedly. It's not just about defending NATO territory, but if the fight escalates and NATO partners are under threat, they're fully prepared to cross over into Ukrainian territory if ordered to do so. Back to you in the studio. Boy, Charlie Daggett, of course, in Romania, 101st Airborne, they've deployed to every major conflict since D-Day, mm. uh, and you sure hope they don't have to add another one to the list. Yes. Oof, scary stuff. But you're glad we have them, though. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, so pretty spine-chilling stuff. Uh, and the U.S. Army Colonel, um, D uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor reacted to this in a um, YouTube interview he did with um, Judge Napolitano. And I want to play a little a couple of clips of his reaction to that because, as he says, um, there's a very serious proposition here about creating some kind of a coalition of the willing, mm. short of full NATO commitment, uh, to get boots on the ground. 
as a tripwire force well, for that, a larger war. That's the scary part, that if they were to send troops in and suffer a mammoth defeat, would that be the trigger for a nuclear exchange? So we'll listen to that. A, a public uh, comment that General uh, Petraeus made uh, in which he said the United States and some NATO countries should lead some sort of an allied force, not a NATO force, but some sort of a coalition of the willing to quote George W. Bush uh, on the ground in Ukraine against the Russians. And knowing Petraeus, as I know you do, I'm sure you know that he wouldn't have said something like that without having run it up the flagpole first. So first, what do you think militarily of what General Petraeus has offered? And secondly, who, since he's a civilian now, up the flagpole, uh, would he have uh, run this past? Who else wants this? Does the Secretary of State actually expect his boss, the president of the United States, whose administration is tottering on the brink and whose physical existence is tottering on the brink to put American troops on the ground. I'm asking you a lot all at once. I'll let you take those balls and run with them. Well, on the first question, I think we have to regard this as having been a kind of trial balloon. In other words, uh, Petraeus was given this material and told to, to run with it because they, the people in Washington are interested to, to see or hear what kind of a response, if any, they get from the American people. That's the first thing. Secondly, unfortunately, I do think there is serious planning going on about the use of U.S. forces uh, in Ukraine. I think it's very dangerous. I think it's ill-conceived, but it's going on. Third, the mention of a coalition of the willing is a dead giveaway because NATO is not united on this issue. Most people in Europe are not interested in being dragged into a war with Russia. The storied American 101st Airborne is in Europe for the first time since World War II. They're in, Mar in uh, Romania. What are they doing in Romania? Well, uh, according to the reports, uh, there are about 5,000 of them this is a mix of light infantry and UH-60 aircraft. I don't know if they have a battalion of, of H-64D uh, attack helicopters with them, but they're supposedly working with Romanian forces. Again, this, this looks like one wing or one leg of the coalition of the willing. Then the rest of the division is up in Poland, which is several hundred, several hundred miles north. And there are all sorts of rumors on, on the internet and people are saying, oh, well, they're, they're going to fly in to Odessa and set up a blocking position to prevent the Russians from moving on Odessa. And uh, they'll be reinforced. Okay, I, I find it hard to believe that we would be quite that stupid because Odessa is very definitely on the uh, menu for the Russians. It's a Russian city, a Russian speaking city. It's never been Ukrainian. And uh, they are going to retake it, just as they're going to retake Kharkov for the same reasons. And that's probably where they would stop normally. But if this happens, uh, I don't think the outcome will be a positive one for the United States and its coalition of the willing. And then, of course, the question is, if we sustain heavy casualties and we are seen as losing, are we then going to turn to nuclear weapons? Because as I've uh. said repeatedly on this thing... I have never seen any interest on the Russian side in the use of a nuclear weapon. I've seen nothing to indicate it. 
The statements that have been made were always made in response to us, response to anyone who questioned whether the Russians would respond if they were attacked with a nuclear weapon. And they made it very clear that they will. And this is the problem with this limited nuclear war business. But I think so, now <clears throat> the danger is we could we could walk into this. And as I tried to point out in that short thousand word op-ed, we're not ready. This is sort of a, a, you know, get set and go in whether you're ready or not. And, and we're not ready. The infrastructure isn't there. The, the tons of ammunition are not on hand. The, the, size, the force sizes don't make any sense. I mean, this, you know, we keep saying, well, the Russians were stupid. When they went in, they made all these mistakes. Well, the Russians at least went in there with a, with a goal of not killing fellow Orthodox Slavs. That was a goal. Didn't want to kill them. All right. That, that didn't quite work out as they'd hoped. But now we're talking about going in and we have no such uh, guidelines or constraints, but we don't have the forces. And we're now saying, well, the Russians are building forces. Well, there's a reason for that. This, is, this place is the size of Texas. If you don't have several hundred thousand troops, you're not going to be able to dominate it. How are we going to do this? There's I something don't else. think it's insane. All right. Now, um, the Russian ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, told Newsweek two days ago, he said, we do not intend to put up with the situation where military threats increase on the Russian borders. The direct involvement of the US military in combat will lead to catastrophic consequences. Mm. So, you know, they're not just going to sit back and watch these forces creeping closer and closer to the border. Mm. Um, I mean, that was the reason for the whole intervention, military intervention into Ukraine in the first place, as we've discussed here before. And one thing to understand is that despite what you might read in the news, Russia does not bluff. Putin does not bluff, ever. If they say they will do something, then that's what they're going to do. Yeah, they're you know. true to their word on things of that nature. Uh, and the other thing to bear in mind as well, um, Scott Ritter, the former UN um, weapons inspector who exposed the weapons of mass dis destruction scam that led us into the Iraq war, so he knows the nature of these, the lies that lead us into wars very well, intimately, uh, he wrote an article for Consortium News just recently discussing the fact that NATO is holding these nuclear exercises called Steadfast Noon, where they're literally practicing the delivery of nuclear weapons against a Russian target. Mm. Um, now, at the same time, Russia at the moment is running its annual Grom Nuclear Command and Control Exercise, that's an annual thing, and they're informing the relevant people, including the U.S., um, that that's going on. Yeah. Which at least, you know, the U.S. military brass themselves came out and said, look, this is normal, this is, you know, we're in constant you know, deconfliction um, per standard practice with, with Russia on this, just like we always are. They haven't breached any protocols, any treaties. They're just doing their regular exercise. So at least... You know, I mean, you know it's bad when the military are the ones trying to calm things down right? yeah. and all the politicians are just going off mm. their heads. And I don't know if you got to look at it, but um, John Helmer also has an article out. So this has just come out, but it's talking about the mm. thinking in the Western countries being that we can make a shift to the idea that nuclear war is winnable mm. and apparently where the US is 
positioning its subs in order to take out a Russian second strike capability mm. if it comes to that. Yeah, so John Helmer, for those who don't know, is a uh, uh, Australian-born um, uh, journal, independent journalist. He's the longest established foreign journalist in, uh, in Moscow, been there since most of the time since 1985 um, personally and has had his full time, had his own press bureau set up um, for most of that time. So um, he's very well connected. Um, in this case, it's not his article, but a translation of one uh, published in a, a Russian um, journal called Vizkliad that mostly focuses on strategic affairs and um, security matters. And so, yeah, what they're saying is that the this uh, Russian, this uh, excuse me, American SSBN, so uh, ballistic missile submarine, mm. uh, just popped up in the Arabian Sea uh, as a deliberate signal. I mean, these things. The whole point of these things is that then you're not supposed to give away your position. So if one of them surfaces in a sensitive area, it's it's a you know it's obviously a a message to somebody. And so what this article goes through. It's by, I forget the name of the gentleman, but he's a, a well-known and respected um, military analyst in Russia, um, according to our sources. And so he, uh, he just goes through what are the implications of this, saying that, yeah, if the... Because uh, these are the Trident missiles that people might be familiar with. The, the UK has them as well. That's their, their, their nuclear deterrent is Trident. Um, they don't have the land-based missiles like the Americans have. Um, but this is a, a large submarine that can carry 24 of these missiles, each of which is capable of carrying up to 10 individually targetable warheads. So 240 warhead, nuclear warheads um, potentially on this one submarine. And so what this guy goes through is that, yeah, of course, you know, success is never guaranteed, but this, they're just demonstrating that they have the capability to launch um, a a strike to get inside Russia's guard um, because they, these missiles, they're, they're ballistic missiles, but they can also be fired on a flat trajectory that makes them less accurate. But with that level of firepower, it doesn't really matter um, because they're in range of the Russian Missile Forces Command, various command centres, and of their known positions of their land base um, nuclear assets that would uh, respond to a... Uh, to a nuclear strike um, on on the Russian homeland, which is their trigger for it. See, Russia has a no first use nuclear doctrine, um, uh, except where an existential threat to its existence exists. Mm. Which, of course, you know, there's no potential of the Ukraine conflict being that unless the American um, unless the Americans get directly involved. Yeah. Um, but the Americans, mm. as you said, they have this concept almost 20 years now that they've been moving closer and closer and closer towards this idea that, well, you know, the number of warheads has come down. It's not an overkill arsenal anymore. It actually is the for practical yield purposes. Of the weapons well, is less, exactly. Yeah. They now have these dialer yield bombs where you can turn down the, the, the TNT equipment, what they call about what they call tonnage, so the equivalent of tons of TNT in a nuclear mm. warhead. You can dial it down to make it usable at a, at a tactical level instead of just a strategic level, mm. the old mutually assured destruction. And so, yet again, it's our side trying to change the rules yeah. and, and create this, this untenable situation to try to force the Russians back down while accusing Russia of doing that, mm -hmm. which it 
it absolutely is not and never has. Yeah, exactly. And <clears throat> talking about our side, Australia in the midst of this has you know, decided we're going to send uh, our forces over to the UK mm -hmm. to train Ukrainian troops. We're yeah, 70 specialist troops to go and train um, Ukrainian reservists or whatever they're saying mm -hmm. in, in the UK. But it's a classic example of mission creep, right? It was six months ago, it was like, oh, we're not going to get into any of that. We're just going to supply material aid. And now it's, well, you know, and I can guarantee the way these guys work. Remember Iraq? It'll be, well, since you're here anyway, yeah. you know, how about you participate step. in this next thing and this yeah. next thing and this next thing? And before you know, we've got boots on the ground yeah. in Ukraine well, if that, we don't already. Oh, for sure. Um, and we're sending more Bushmasters, apparently. There's, we're apparently sending these kamikaze drones made in Melbourne. Yeah, little tiny things that you can launch from um, hand portable, like, like those 40 millimetre grenade launchers that they sling under the barrels of, of the uh, assault rifles that, mm. the, that the troops use. So, yeah, these things, they swarm capable, uh, autonomous drone, loitering munitions. People might have heard that term. Yeah. They hang around until the target's identified and then they come in from multiple directions. Mm -hmm. and it can be equipped with various types of anti-personnel and anti-armour warheads. And, they're, um, they're only small, but they're quite potent for their size. Yeah, yeah, it would be deadly in certain circumstances. And for the first time, additionally, our RAAF are participating in NATO exercises in the Mediterranean, um, the Sea Guardian mission mm. in southern Italy to provide apparently surveillance data mm. to Which NATO Which again, troops. this is anti-submarine warfare, so this is finding and targeting Russian submarines um, to take out the deterrent, that type of thing. Yeah. And whoever they had on TV, the news last night, um, justifying this was saying, you know, oh, we can't let a big country like Russia bully a little country like Ukraine. Well, yeah, but what about if it's the US and the UK and the big countries using Ukraine as a proxy? That, that mm. never comes into their equation when they're talking about it in this way. Um, and the other question is... the the push to have some kind of a negotiation to sue for peace is being um, held up by people saying, oh, well, it's up to, you know, the West says it's up to Ukraine to decide to negotiate. But the mm. point is that Ukraine wouldn't have a choice in the matter if they weren't being fed with weapons and assistance from mm. the Western countries. They would be forced to do it. So you'd have a completely different situation. Yeah. And of course, as you said, they've been run as a proxy this whole time since the coup in 2014. Everybody knows this, mm. you know, yeah. unless they're lying to themselves. Yeah. Um, so we want to shift it now because talking about peace and negotiations and um, things that would be of win-win benefit, mm. nuclear technologies are vital. I mean, nuclear, the discovery of nuclear capabilities is just discoveries of how the universe works and harnessing and applying that mm. and we have to apply it for the good of humanity. So nuclear power is what Australia reads right, needs right now and we are getting a stunning response actually on this question. You can look at our video. We have a short um, five or six minute video, which is an ad on YouTube. And it's our highest rating um, mm. video that we've ever put out there. It's getting a lot of traction. We're getting traction from within the political parties, from the union movement. There's various voices that are pushing for nuclear power. And it couldn't be more urgent, actually, mm. because of the, um, I mean, we've just discussed in the budget that um, the prices of energy would rise by 50% or so? Yeah, the, even the government is saying 56% total, so another 30-odd percent from where we are now. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, that's a conservative estimate. It's likely to be much worse the longer this war yeah. drags on that they're using as the excuse 
But not the, it's not the reason, though. No, it's not the real reason at all, because um, as we've gone through again this week in a press release, which is also in this week's alert service, um, in 1978, John Howard, as treasurer, came up with this rationale based on this free market ideology that never had anything to do with reality and that almost no one but us is, is crazy or stupid enough to have done mm. as a country, where instead of using our own resources, oil in, in, the, in the first instance, but it applies to coal and gas as well, which is the driver of these energy prices, especially the marginal you know, the, the spot price of gas drives the marginal price of electricity up and down, right? Um, and the more renewables they put in the system, the more that becomes the case because the only peaking, the, the peaking gas plants are, the, are the, the backup for the intermittency of the so-called renewables, except for hydro, but um, they're not considering that. So, um, so yeah, the, uh, and actually, uh, it's, this is finally starting to break through to politicians, including in the Labor Party. There was a great quote today from the uh, energy minister of South Australia, because the uh, Tom Kutsantonis, uh, because the energy ministers are meeting today to discuss this crisis, and now the state governments are pushing labour, federal labour, to cap prices and to return to the pre nineteen seventy eight model of uh, domestic of, of of domestic energy prices being capped relative to the price of domestic production rather than the global price, mm. which John Howard called a subsidy, right? Had yeah. the gall to call this a subsidy, creating an inefficient use of a finite resource. You know, John Howard using ecological arguments to justify a, a tax grab and, and um, yeah. you know. And so he, he put this idea forward that we needed to have import parity, import pricing, parity pricing and basically match our prices to overseas prices. <laughs> Yeah, and so what this gentleman from South Australia says today, he says, I'll just read the quote out, Australians find it unacceptable that fossil fuel companies are charging prices here that reflect the global price spike instead of local production costs. We are suffering because our commodity prices have been internationalised. The federal government has the regulatory triggers and needs to lead the process to differentiate domestic and export markets. And even the ultra-liberal neoliberal uh, New South Wales government um, is calling for, uh, the, you know, calling for this problem to be addressed, um, you know, not quite in those terms, but saying, look, you, you can't do this just by regulating gas. You know, you have to have coal and gas addressed together. Uh, he's not suggesting any solutions the way Mr. Um, Kutsantanis is, but just saying this is not acceptable any longer. Mm. Yeah, so we have to go nuclear as well, you know, it's rectified these pricing problems. We've got plenty of those supplies mm. of energy available if we utilise them in the right way. But at the same time, the, the, the real drive to go nuclear mm. uh, is there for the future. And one of the things that you pointed out in an article, which people can read in this week's alert service, is that <clears throat> not only coal-fired plants, but all gas plants, wind turbines and solar panels will have reached the end of their service mm. life by 2050. And in terms of the price of replacing that, it would be um, in the order of 150 billion, perhaps as high as 350 billion, according to a report that's been released by the University of Queensland. Mm. And developing a fleet of small modular reactors would come in at the lower end of that yeah. price range. Yep. Um, 
And the lower end of the estimates is not 150 billion; it's 75 billion. Is the is the range? So okay. the, the middle figure is it's it's in the order of 150. Yeah. But it, they say in there they did, the, and this is a team of expert researchers at UQ. Um, this was report. This publish uh, report was published in um, uh, mid last year, before all of this happened. They mm-hmm. said like this is you know this is the solution to this. We need to start looking at this, because as you said. And, and the thing that, you know, Chris Bowen gets up, the federal en- energy minister, and says, oh, no, firmed renewables are, are still the cheapest. Everybody knows this. Every, anyone who says otherwise is dangerously ignorant. Well, sorry, Mr. Bowen, but the dangerous ignorance is yours. Because as these uh, researchers point out, these renewables are so short-lived that if we're going to be at net zero by 2050, we will have their ex- there's anything installed now its service life will have expired by then and it will require replacement constantly mm. over and over again. It's also universally acknowledged that the cost of firming all this stuff, as they call it, providing a continuous steady stream of power out of what's a very intermittent source, mm. um, is going to cost many times, multiple times, what the, what the generators themselves do. Whereas, and they're still more expensive in the long run, than nuclear plants because nuclear plants have an operational life of 60 to 80 years, mm. um, especially, and these small modular reactors can take advantage of existing infrastructure. That's the key point. Mm. If, you're, if you build wind farms, solar farms, you've got to put those out where in the, in the regional areas they have a huge footprint, conventional, and you've got to build the interconnectors to join them up to the grid. And you've got to, uh, in addition to all the batteries that we just that I just talked about, but um, uh, these modular reactors—they're self-contained units, one one hundredth the size of a conventional gigawatt-scale nuclear plant. They also have inherent containment um, in the design, so that your so-called emergency planning zone—the area potentially affected by a meltdown—if you know it's almost impossible for these things to melt down. In fact, a lot of designs, it actually is impossible to Mm. melt them down. But that aside, the ones that they're using, the most feasible technology for various reasons is this one made by a a company in America called NewScale. It's got approval by the IAEA and the US regulator. And they're building a test plant, a pilot plant in um, Idaho. Um, They don't need a constant supply of water, so you can build them anywhere. They need water installed for cyclical cooling, but you can you can work. You know, you don't need to have a constant stream of water mm-hmm. if you don't want to. Um, they can run up and down to uh, ramp up and down very fast, like, just like a gas peaking plant, to cover the intermittency of the renewables that already are in the system that they would ultimately replace. Um, you just let those expire and don't put new ones in because you don't need them. You've got mm. nuclear. And, but the big ticket is, as I said, the, you can put these things on a, uh, a 16 hectare site, um, the, the emergency planning zone where you have to have contingency plans in the case of a meltdown is um, a 16 mile radius, uh, 16 kilometre radius with a gigawatt scale plant in, under US law, where they used the most of these things, well, built them first. Um, this thing, it's limited to the actual site, one square kilometre. Mm, that's it. Ten hectares. That's it. Mm. Um, Nothing extra beyond the site itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for just as an example, for comparison, par- Federal Parliament House Complex, 
is that they mention in this report is 35 hectares. Mm. So, you know, twice the size. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, if you build these, these modular reactor um, facilities on uh, the sites of these uh, decommissioned coal plants, like Hazelwood, for instance, I looked up the numbers. The, site of, uh, the Hazelwood site and the, and the adjoining mine together, 3,500 hectares. Uh, Loy Yang, 6,000 plus. Mm, mm -hmm. So you can build as many additional modules on these sites as you ever need. Yep. And the transmission infrastructure is already all there. You just plug it in. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that we're not doing this. Yeah. And the, the report even suggests that this is an area where governments should provide funding, at least part thereof. Mm. Um, it says uh, there are some roles only government can play. Yeah. And should play. Yeah, of course. And and as they point out, you know, it's not just funding, but financing. So guaranteeing lending or lending themselves. Governments as governments can, we have a we have a clean energy finance corporation. Yeah. Perfect. Um, that is there to finance these kind of projects. Yeah. As once we repeal the bans on mm. nuclear power that exist in several states as yeah. well as federal law, but yeah, financing, um, is it you, you know. It just required, because of the long service life, it has to be tied to that. And what private investor is going to buy into something that doesn't pay off until 30 years after you're mm, dead, mm -hmm, right? Mm. That's why governments do these things. But once you, once you put in that upfront cost, it pays, it pays itself off mm. and more. And these, and these modular ones, you can just keep them running, the, the, the facility itself, you can keep them running theoretically yeah. forever. Mm -hmm. You know, which brings us back to our banking solutions because um, the fight for a post office people's bank is just the first step in a suite of policies to return to national banking in this country like we used to have with the old Commonwealth Bank um, and build this country and make these um, moves that we have to make. So remember, get on to your local councils and any other local organisations and authorities. Keep pestering your members of parliament about the necessity for the people's bank Prepare, get prepared for your submissions on the ASIC inquiry. All these fronts all intersect. They're all part of the one and the same fight. Um, but, yeah, that's basically the show for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Lisa. And tune in again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party Melbourne.